tonight something very special. As I said earlier, 59 years ago this day, the Battle of the Bulge began in Belgium uh, and bordering on France and Alsace and uh, Luxembourg as well. And three veterans of that battle, two of them there on the day the Germans first rolled in, are with us. Uh, those two are um, Bill Wilkin and Paul Graham. Stuart McDonnell, our third guest, got there a few days later. He was sent up from a replacement depot in France, uh, having just arrived uh, from, uh, I guess, either England or stateside. Uh, gentlemen, what memories do you have? Uh, let me turn to Bill Wilkin on this instantly. What memories do you have of that first day? When did you first see the Germans? Where, and how, how strongly did they come on? Well, actually, on December the 16th was the first day that the, of the attack. And uh, I was in the artillery position about three and a half miles back from the front, the actual front. Mm -hmm. And we did have, in the morning, the early morning hours, we had uh, 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 patrols of Germans coming into our forward positions, and we repelled them with our 50 caliber machine guns. And they, they retreated a little bit back because they were just a, an opening force. And uh, what we did was we made, made sure, sure that the area was secure, and then we got our orders about three or four hours later that we might have to evacuate that particular area and go back across over the Ore River. Did they know what was coming on, the extent of the German force? No, I wouldn't think so. But we knew that we knew that we had an overpowering type of force coming against us. And, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, we had, I'll tell you, we had some marvelous officers in our combat unit. We had the, uh, we were the, uh, uh, it was 112th Infantry co Combat Team, and the 229th Field Artillery was my, my organization. And we were in direct support of the infantry people. And uh, we had marvelous officers. Colonel Nelson and Colonel Fairchild did a great job in, in throughout those days when we were really troubled. And Paul Graham, where were you on the first day? On the first day, I was in a foxhole in Hertzken Force. The second division was to attack the Roar River dams, and my regiment was to protect the right side of the second division. Now, the 2nd Division and the 99th at that time did not get the full brunt of that artillery till a little later because we were stuck out like a thumb and in an attack mode at the time. And really, we didn't feel there was too much going on at that particular hour or hours in the morning. The Germans rolled on with tremendous force and with immediate success in the first few days. Uh, uh, what was the size of the, and the nature of the German onslaught? Well, of course, we're in, my, in my particular spot where I was, uh, we were in an area that wasn't really conducive to tanks, so they had to look for, for hard roads and so forth mm -hmm. to make any advance, but they, they, the infantry forces uh, would penetrate and actually, the first day wasn't too bad for us. We uh, we did pull back to uh, across the Ore River and set up positions there, but we were in direct support of our infantry, still firing our, our artillery pieces. And uh, as I said, we uh, our outfit actually splintered off from our, our 28th Infantry Division. We were one combat unit, and then we had to operate independently for about three or four days, fighting a delayed action. And finally, we got to San Vith. St. Vith became a very important right. location yes, in that, the that, battle that, as it unfolded. That allowed the paratroopers to get the bastone. Yeah. Um, Stuart McDonald was back in France in a replacement depot. They shipped you out probably that night, did they? No. 
you're thinking of like the 82nd Airborne and 101st. They 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 were in that area. I was still on the uh, convoy. Oh really? You're oh yes. On, on if you're talking ocean. about December 16, yeah, I was out there uh, on a the SS Volendam, part of a big convoy. From the states or from England? From the states. Yeah. So and we went directly to uh, La Havre. Yeah. Which was about the end of the year. And we immediately got off there, got on LST, went into La Havre, onto these 40 and 8 cars that I always heard about. Mm -hmm. And Zippo, the next morning, mm -hmm. we were in uh, Givet, France. And the, that's the replacement depot, or Repel Depel, as right. I used to call it. Mm -hmm. And that was the beginning of my start of being a when replacement. Do you get, when do you get into the area of the battle? Where? When? How soon do you get up there to the battle? Oh, that uh, we, at the Repel Depel, we got our assignment. They put us into the 112th. Uh, they, uh, <laughs> the next day, I was in a machine gun section uh, online, and the first night I was there, we were bombed. Our artillery came in, and that was a, I fortunately I had a veteran with me in the foxhole that he had dug, and uh, <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't our artillery that uh, no that's true, <laughs> but uh, it was my uh, start of uh, I got there late, but the there's a movie that was called Battleground. Mm -hmm. And it, it, the things that happened to me the first night the, the, in the foxhole, and a fellow I had gotten to know very well back in training was back in the company headquarters area, and the, the shells went over us and into that area and killed him. This is a five to six, five and a half week battle running from December 16th to January 28th. That latter date is given as the official end of the battle. Uh, the casualties are tremendous. This is the largest number of Americans killed in any engagement in World War II, isn't it? Yes. 19,000 is yeah. the estimate I've seen. That's right. 19,000 killed and... Uh, 81,000 killed, wounded, captured. Yeah. And the German casualties run even higher. Yes, they were about 100,000 plus. And this after the successful landings in Normandy and uh, the heavy fighting, but still the, uh, the rush forward through France, the liberation of Paris, I think, comes before this. And, sure. mm -hmm. and uh, significant uh, movement towards the German border through the Low Countries until this stops the American forces. Well, it, it almost seemed like it was very, very easy after after Saint Lo was was liberated that we just run across France. But there was a lot of fighting between Saint Lo and and northern France when we we got toward the Sigrid yeah. line. So it, it it wasn't that easy, and uh, <laughs> there were plenty of casualties even at every crossroad mm -hmm. where the Germans would have uh, have have units. What did it feel like? You guys were kids. How how old were you on the date of December sixteenth, nineteen forty four? I must have been, I think I was 21. And you? 19. 19? 20. And 20. You were kids, very, very young men. Most of the units were very young. Of course. And, uh, thank goodness they were, because I think we needed that. The, because, offi uh, the officers were in their upper 20s and, right. and lower 30s. Probably. Well, we had a, in our machine gun squad, one of the fellows was 32. 
Mm-hmm. His last name was spelled different. It was McDonald, and we called a, him Pop. Or the old man, yeah. That's right. Um, when did they begin dying around you? Did you see uh, casualties quite early? First day, the first day, our, our, our machine gun corporal was killed. Yeah. And it, intercepting the people coming in, the Germans coming into our, our forward position. You know. What sense did you have of the nature of the individual Germans who came at you? And what, what did the Germans look like to... Germans, Germans were, were a uniform. You never looked at the, at the person in uh-huh. his eyes, you really did, but you knew you were, it was the enemy and he was dressed in that green uniform or, or whatever type of uniform they had. And uh, so it was the uniform that you were shooting at, so it wasn't an individual and so forth, because I don't think anybody individually wanted to kill anybody else, but symbolically the, the uniform was what we were after. Well, did, did incidents of close combat occur, or was it all shooting at people with artillery from you say close combat. rifles now, from a with, distance? With the infantry boys, of course, there could be some very, very close combat, yeah. and especially with the tanks and so forth, because using bazookas and things like that, they're in quite close contact. As an artillery observer, an, an obser- uh, uh, artillery observing party that I was in, we were with the infantry firing our artillery pieces in support of the, of the infantry. So we were at the front, and uh, we... In fact, uh, we're really pretty good friends with the infantry because we did give them pretty good support. We need to develop a picture of the overall flow of the battle. It's a five-and-a-half-week event, so the armies are moving in different directions at different times. Uh, For a while, the Germans are up. Ultimately, they are pushed back and defeated. How that all went and some of the great incidents, including the siege of Bastogne, are worth retelling. When we return from some impending commercials, let's lay out the course of the battle, if only in a brief narrative overview. We return to Stuart McDonnell, Bill Wilkin, Paul Graham, all veterans of the Battle of the Bulge, after these words. How can we, in radio, that is not with the chart in front of us on the screen, how can we sort of um, convey the scope of the battle, uh, the area in which it all occurred, and then what happened uh, as the first thrust uh, cut through and uh, an American response was made. Who wants to attempt to paint the larger picture? Well, I'd maybe tell you before they started moving, uh, from what I've read, the Germans had already gone through in World War I through the Ardennes, which is a very densely forested area. Beautiful country. Uh, it's the invasion route into Belgium that's from right. Germany. And they did it again in the early in the early 40s. Mm-hmm. And uh, so if we can believe the Americans were lulled to the fact that, well, they wouldn't come through a third time into the same area. Uh, but they did, and they had all sorts of indications. Uh, there was a woman who I've read about that came across from the German side to the American side and told the commanders, one of the ones from the 28th Division, uh, one of the companies there, I don't think it was 112th, but uh, that she saw all this activity and all these trucks and tanks and men on the other side of the Ur River. And they sent a report in, but it got bogged down somewhere. And so from that standpoint, the Americans weren't ready. The Germans had as their intention, and it was Hitler who conceived this whole plan, from what, I, from what I've read. Uh, many of his general staff urged him not to go forward with this operation, but he insisted that this was the only way to redeem 
their fortunes or else they would lose the war. And the immediate aim, I gather, <coughs> was to cut across Belgium and take the port of Antwerp. Antwerp. What would that, if they had succeeded in doing that, which they did not, what, how would that have been an advantage for them? They were, they were he, uh, the Germans were intending to split the American and the English forces. They thought that, that mm -hmm. would be a demoralizing situation for them and that they could handle each side of this. The English were on the north, right. the Americans on the south. Right, right. Patton was down there mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. doing other work, but they wheeled him around to relieve, uh, essentially to relieve Bastogne. Right. Well, they, they actually, they, they were hoping that this uh, this tank, uh, the tanks would be able to, the German tanks would be able to reach that in, in a certain scheduled time. And uh, play, uh, play the alternative history game. What if they had succeeded in reaching Antwerp and splitting the armies? Would that have really given them a victory in the war? I don't think so. I don't think it would either. I no. don't think it would do that. No, I think it would just delay the inevitable. They needed the supplies. They had they had no uh, uh, replacement parts for their for their equipment and so forth. So. Uh, no, I don't think it would have made that big of a difference. It would have cost us more in lives, though. How far did they get before the tide was reversed? I think they were about, was it 60 miles from Antwerp? Uh, yes, about 60 miles. About, yes, that'd be mm -hmm. about right. And that's how many days into the battle? That, that would have been for, to the around the 24th, I think, of December. They, they, they accomplished quite a bit, but... Uh, just uh, we were able to we were able to stop them and, and delay them in getting their getting to their objectives, and that's the main thing that uh, uh, it's one of the reasons why I know our combat team got the a, a presidential citation because of their their withdrawal and their uh, their fighting and the delaying the action. Paul Graham, <clears throat> I think we have to put the battle, the conditions at that time. It was cold, very cold, snow on the ground, sleet, fog, a lot of fog. You couldn't see our air cover. We had no air cover at the time due to the fog. And the divisions that were up there on the line, they were doing their part by running patrols, doing the things that an infantry division would do the 2nd Division, the 99th, the 106th, and the 28th. Those were the four divisions that were on the line. Then between the 99th and the 106th was the 14th Cavalry. Those divisions were doing their part. There was, back in your higher echelons, a feeling that, oh, nothing's going to happen here. There'll be nothing done till the weather warms up, and we are just in more or less a winter camp. We just back of us, they're celebrating, getting ready to celebrate Christmas. Nothing going on here, boys. Things are fine. Well, that wasn't the case. It was just what the Germans wanted us to do and to feel. Some of the higher echelons said when they were told what the start of the bulge that all one of our high generals said let him come well he had to eat those words because come they did and they came in full force a lot of tanks a lot of infantry and they had planes out and they were bombing where our planes couldn't get through they surrounded certain units that had to surrender and then of course there was that massacre at 
Malmedy. The, the area known as Malmedy. Um, where is that? What happened at Malmedy? Actually, the Germans, German, the, the, uh, a field artillery organization was overrun, and and they 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 uh, took them as in, uh, uh, as pe prisoners. I'm sorry, as prisoners, and uh, they took them to a holding area in a field, and uh, they just opened up with them on machine guns. How many were killed? I think they said something like 106. My, yeah. my, my recollection, anyway, but it was a sizable number. But there were a number of thousands of Americans who did surrender. Yes, well, the, the, the 106th Division, of course, which was on the left of, of a 28th Division there in the first day of the bulge, uh, they lost two regiments. They, they had only had one remaining regiment that was fighting with us later, 424th Infantry, and they joined the 28th uh, uh, Division. So, You said hundreds of uh, Americans uh, surrendered. Not quite. The only two that in mass were the two regiments from the 106th. How, how many people did that number? Oh, what's one? 4,000 in a regiment, approximately. Yeah, all right. Yeah. It was a pretty big number. Sure. <laughs> and you asked uh, about how long it lasted, their uh, offensive. It started on December 16th, 44. High point was December 24th, 1944. Uh, that's the day the Germans were stopped. And the American troops started to push them back and back. And by January 20th of 45, uh, 35 days after the German attack started, they were back at their original starting point there. How were they stopped? What stops them finally in their advance? I think, first of all, they started running out of supplies for their tanks. Uh, the quickness of the troops in the rear and also from other areas. Uh, I don't think the Germans thought the Americans could get assembled that quickly. And they did, and that, you know, from that point on, it was pushed back and back until the end. I, I agree with Stu there. I think it was, a, it was a situation where we were able to get our reserves up to, uh, to help uh, the, the divisions that were directly affected. Bill Wilson, what was your worst day in that battle? My worst day? When did it all look the darkest? Well, actually, in the first couple of days, we were wandering around a little bit, but uh, we weren't in uh, weren't in direct contact with the with the enemy at that time. But at night would be the worst time because I would be manning a radio all night, no sleep, and I, I remember being two or three days really without sleep. And the only communication we had was radio, uh, because of the fact that we were were uh, deploying and so forth. So I, I would I would say that's probably the worst part. And the cold was 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 bad too. But didn't you ever feel, my God, I'm about to die or I'm in danger of being killed? That, that started back in Normandy when you, when you <laughs> first started there. You know that, that was with uh, you every day. You, you, you suddenly realize that somebody's out there trying to kill you. And uh, then you say, well, it's going to be them, it's not going to be me. And frankly, you didn't have time to think about that an awful lot. And some of the most dangerous times that I've been, when I've been shot at and so forth, it, it's never been, I, I was always trying to get out of this thing by remembering my training. You know, what to do, how, to, how do you crawl back and get into a ditch when somebody's shooting at you? I mean, these things were important. Yeah. Well, that's easy. You go lickety-split. <laughs> uh, and, like, and dive for the ditch. Well, that's <laughs> right. I would like to say something about the 106th Division. <clears throat> the 106th Division took a terrible wallop from the Germans. They had superior forces. The two regiments 
that retired that surrendered to the Germans they had no alternative but to surrender they were overwhelming force when they surrendered the 106 our whole right flank of the 99th division was open that meant that the Germans could surround us if they had the people to get up there with their tanks which would only been a matter of time to show that the Americans could move troops they got the first division the big red one which was back scattered all over back as far almost to Paris they brought them up got them there in a day then the 82nd came up they were on our flank these are the two divisions that plugged the gap right there or we would have been captured our whole division. You know I can't resist a, a local note in response to that one of the commanding generals of the uh, big red one is a friend of ours uh, he wasn't there then he commanded uh, the first division in Kosovo that's uh, General David Grange who is now second in command of the Tribune um, uh, of the McCormick Tribune Fund and Dave Grange who is seen very frequently on CNN as a man as a military analyst these days uh, is often on this program and in fact will be with us uh, in uh, just a few weeks when we do our year-end review of the news Kosovo is a place uh, where the uh, some of the uh, units of the uh, 28th division of course it's back to being a Pennsylvania National Guard now but that's where they uh, mm -hmm. were sent and I think there's still some of them uh, there in Kosovo which uh, is an area I cannot really sit down and say gee I'm glad we have troops in Kosovo I mean uh, Kosovo or uh, you just yeah, wonder why they're still there they're still keeping the Albanians and the Serbs from killing one another oh not with total success as a matter of fact but basically that's what they're doing I might say that I also was later a member of the first division the mm -hmm. 16th infantry the big red one and they managed to survive with you didn't they, they certainly did <laughs> we um, must talk about the siege of Baston or Bastogna as they would say there I think uh, and uh, what that was all about and how that siege was relieved it's a great and dramatic story and we will tell it or retell it right after we pause for these words we are talking about and reliving aspects of the Battle of the Bulge which began 59 years ago today uh, with three veterans of that time and place uh, they are Paul Graham who was a sergeant in the 28th Division of the 1st Army Bill Wilkin who um, uh, do I have that right or wrong? No, that's not quite right. Yeah. I was correct me instantly. 99th. The 99th, not the 28th. That's right. Um, and um, let's let's review all of that. Uh, Bill Wilkie, what was yours? 28th Division, 229th Field Artillery Battalion. Yeah, and um, oh, that was also part of the First Army yes. at the time. And when Stuart McDonald got uh, up there, they assigned you to the 28th Division. To the 28th. Um, now then, Bastogne, what was that all about? Well, let me just set the stage if I could for this. Please. I'd like to take a little credit for something here for, for my organization, that 112th Combat Team we were telling about. Yeah. 
we fought a delaying action for four or five days, and then we got to St. Beth, and we joined the 106 with the remnants of the 106. Another delaying action, we were the rear guard for the entire First Army. And we went back, and we actually joined with Patton's organization to restore, not only to allow the paratroopers to get to Bastogne, but we also uh, uh, started to, to help in the relief of Bastogne. So that's... Uh, now, as far as Bastogne goes, my cousin was there, and I never even realized it, but... Uh, uh, it, uh, it it was quite a, a notable battle and so forth. So I, I, I have no personal knowledge of Bastogne by itself. Let's look at it strategically. Where is Bastogne in the field of uh, battle? And why was, it, why was it so important that the Germans take it? There was crossroads there that was very important for them to get to Antwerp, really. Mm -hmm. and that was one of the reasons why they wanted Bastogne. And uh, our people were essentially uh, uh, parachute troops, weren't they? Who yes. Were, who were holding Bastogne. Well... Eventually, yes. Were they, the, 100? <clears throat> the 101st was not the first group uh, that uh, started digging in at Bastogne. There were some other groups in there in that but, area. But it was mainly the paratroopers that were uh, in, in the with the defense. Commanded yes. by General McAuliffe, is that right? Right. Yeah. yeah. And they are. How many men were there then? I holding the town. I think we'd have to guess it. There, we were talking before, probably around 10,000, right, Paul? Well, that's a good guess. <laughs> and they were surrounded by... Somebody will call in and they argue were, that. They were surrounded, right. They were actually By a vast off. German force, a much superior right, German right, force. Right, right. Who came in one day, officers under a flag of truce, and asked for or offered a surrender. Right. And that's when McAuliffe said nuts. <laughs> His famous response was, right. ah, nuts. <laughs> and the Germans had some trouble understanding what that meant. Right, and then that uh, during the, all that time in Bastogne, when they when they were they were fighting there, the paratroopers, it gave the gave Patton a chance to get up mm -hmm. there to relieve them. I, to this day, it's very difficult for me to accept that that's the words they used. All nuts. Me too. I I just uh, that's beyond my imagination. Having been in the service, know the way people talk, soldiers talk, and especially on something like that, they want you to surrender. And it's always been my feeling that our nuts was not a walk in the park. And uh, I, I think other terms might have been used, but that's my own feeling. Well, I've heard a story from uh, an old army hand that who said he knew this to be the fact that other words were used. Um, as long as I had the same meaning, it was all right. <laughs> having the same meaning, but a bit more... Uh, uh, gusto. <laughs> with a little bit more gusto, yeah. We were talking off the air about uh, some of the tragedies that we saw, some mm. of the, the worst part of being in a war. Uh, I told earlier about the, this friend of mine who was killed in the first time on the line, uh, the next night, our company started moving up through the snow. God knows where we were going. And somebody stepped on a mine. Now, this is my second day in this thing. And this poor guy was screaming his head off. It had blown his foot off. And, you know, it was only six ahead of me. Uh, the pieces of shrap shrapnel went zipping by my our ears. And that got me... Uh, to the point where I, hey, I guess I'm in a war. But a couple of days later, I can't remember what particular time it was. During the day, we were 
going down this ice-covered road, colder than hell. Um, and uh, we stopped every time, you know, you'd get 10-minute breaks. And there's this big building off to the side. It looked like a big American shed. And being nosy, another fellow and myself went over there, and we opened the doors and went inside. And from the ground up for maybe 20 or 30 feet, and God knows how far wide, were frozen bodies, Americans. I, it, it really shook me up. I was, you know, just beginning to know about war and its These were parts. war dead who had been stored yes. there? Is that, yes. is that what that was? I talked to a... And a lot of people didn't believe this happened, but there they were. I'd yeah. swear on a Bible that we saw them. And there was a fellow in Paul's town of Uport who was a um, in charge of... Mm -hmm. uh, funeral director. Yeah, he was a funeral director. He, he's a, what do you call him in what? the military? Um, People that takes care of the... Grace registration? That's it. Yes. Mm -hmm. And he came to one of our meetings and uh i brought that thing up and he argued oh no we we got those bodies took care of them right away no baloney there were so many from that that engagement that they hadn't done it and i always remember that yeah. particular part uh paul what were you telling me when uh, we were off the air about uh, a group of uh, american black soldiers who were massacred, did you say? Yes. I saw those bodies. The snow had covered them over. And when we had a bit of a thaw, they were discovered. And I looked the bodies over. There was 11 or 12. I thought I, thought I counted 13 at first. Mm -hmm. But they were beat with rifle butts in the face, bayoneted through the groin, shot, just just beat up terribly. So, in other words, the, your guess, your interpretation would be they had been taken prisoner and then they were yes, killed I, that I, way. I'll give you the other part of that. Yeah. They were in the, I had thought there was a couple anti-aircraft uh, close by, and I had thought that they were part of that unit but they weren't. The group that they were with had moved out, and somehow or other, these men did not move from their position. Everybody had been out of that area for a short time, and they, being cold and hungry, had gone up to these small farmhouses. The Germans, or Belgians, whatever they probably were, had taken them in and let them get warm and had given some coffee to drink. And while they were in the house, the Germans had pulled up in a command car or whatever they had. They came in the house, brought the American prisoners out, took them down a cow path and lined them up. And there they did the work on these American black troops.
the Germans that were in the houses said, we did not go out to investigate till the next day. So we didn't know what happened to them, but we had heard the gunfire. My division was asked to do the research on what happened there. And one of our officers who I knew and another officer who was our uh, German interpreter, they did a thorough research on this. They never to this day found out who exactly were these troops that did this. I did have all of the information on this. I even had some pictures of it. And I gave it away approximately 10 years ago to a black soldier that was in my division and was at a reunion. And I told him about it and gave him all of the information and the pictures. Well, this man has since then passed away. So I don't have any more information on it. But nobody was found to who the, the guilty ones were. I gather from what you say that it was your impression that their being black had something to do with their being killed. I... Yes, I, it's always been my understanding the Germans feared the blacks and didn't like the blacks. And when they caught them like that, they give them the severest penalty they could. Well, they were all, uh, they were all uh, more or less trained in German racist theory of the Hitlerian variety. Uh, even American Jewish soldiers, when captured, were shipped off for special maltreatment. And many more of those died uh, in prisoner of war camps than did uh, non-Jewish uh, white American soldiers. And obviously, Hitler spoke with great contempt of blacks on occasion. Remember that incredible scene at the 1936 Olympics when Jesse Owens and Ralph Metcalf of Chicago uh, distinguished themselves uh, as in various track events, and Hitler refuses to, uh, to shake their hand or to be present when the prizes are awarded, though he would usually salute or shake a hand or otherwise uh, manifest himself in the area where uh, the major victories were rewarded. But he wouldn't go near the blacks. He was angry that uh, the blacks had won, showing him up for being uh, a false prophet with regard to racial superiority. Yeah. Remember. Incredible. Yes. But I'd never heard such a story before about it. Yes, it, it's all documented yeah. in... Uh, I, I know that others, uh, it, it, in fact, it's in my, I believe it's in one of my division books uh -huh. about it. I remember <clears throat> after seeing the bodies, I came back later and there was an American medical officer and a sergeant with him and they were going over the bodies and he was the officer was calling out the wounds on the soldier and they had the dog tags on and I remember one man was from New York and I know his I remember his name was Smith I do remember that at one time I could have named four or five but it's yeah. left me now after all these years in the middle of the war, in the middle of the Battle of the Bulge and beyond, because you guys were busy, uh, well, two of you were busy fighting before the Battle of the Bulge, 
through the battle and even beyond. Uh, did you develop any hatred for the enemy or merely a wariness about the danger they posed for you? Well, we we knew they were the enemy, and uh, and uh, with that, I, I don't I don't think I hated them, but I knew I had to defeat them, or that we had to defeat them, and I would I I was willing to kill them if I had to, and uh, uh, that wasn't my primary job as as an, I was an artilleryman rather than an, an infantryman. It's a slightly intrusive question, but I uh, I will presume to ask it anyway. Were you aware uh, of having directly killed some anybody else? I think I'd have to say yes because of the fact of the uh, uh, firing ar the artillery pieces. We, we brought down shells on yeah. quite a few of them. But you didn't see anybody in front of you that you killed? In a distance it would be. We could yeah. see them getting out of their coals and coming into those. We had a, we had a system in, in artillery where we would fire high explosives and they would, they, they, they would uh, explode above the ground. That would drive the, the, the people out of their mm -hmm. foxholes. Then we'd yeah. throw in some white phosphorus, which was an awful type thing. It would, it would burn and you'd have to pick the, the elements out of your skin and so forth. So, I mean, I hate to say it, but yes, I'm afraid that was true. We could see that we were causing some trouble. After the first of the year, and the weather started getting better. Uh, the Germans had a, a bad habit. We, as a machine gun section, were in the back. We had guys out in front, riflemen, you know. They would be fired upon. They might get hit. And it was... In many cases, they were snipers that were uh, from the German army that were doing the, the damage. And when they ran out of ammo, they'd surrender. <clears throat> well, I know a couple of times in our particular uh, unit, uh, I, I heard about it, uh, they shot him. You know, if they're going to play the game, okay going to play the game like that, shoot our, our uh, advanced units without any warming, warning, and then raise their hands? Uh, no, that didn't work good. They would say camarade, perhaps, yeah. but you wouldn't treat them as comrades. No. I personally, uh, you know, we didn't, we weren't up there in the front, but no. I knew some of the fellows up there, yes. They'd shoot them. There were stories. I never, I can't remember in ours... You know, hey, take these prisoners back to the uh, aid station or wherever they're collecting the, the collection part. And you heard stories about... Uh, some of them didn't get there. Yeah, some of them yeah. didn't get there. I heard, I saw one guy being taken back by one of our uh, riflemen. And maybe, you know, 30 seconds later, I heard a bang and they came back alone. I don't know how often that happened in other units, but it did happen. So Ment there was hatred. Mentally, you know, after, you, after you've been involved in, in, in these attacks for several days, and if you have to be in it for several days, you get a certain look about you, and there's a, you know, when you have a lack of sleep and so forth, and uh, when you see your friends get killed, you, 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 there's a mindset that you have there, and, and sometimes it, it gets a little bit out of control. I think this is an eternal story in the annals of battle, all the way back to the Roman legions or before, and up to the present. That is to say, sur surrendered enemy don't necessarily make it uh, to the safety uh, in a prisoner of war camp. We've been talking about German massacre of 
uh, Americans taken prisoner. The same happened on our side, of course. It's a horrible thing. It, it breaks the laws of war, uh, but it goes. It happens, and it goes on happening, undoubtedly. Well, there are times when I know that that's happened, and uh, unfortunately, as I say, it gets to be a mindset once in a while when sure. you find that uh, people who have, uh, have a mental strain and so forth in this. And it's a difficult job. It's a difficult job. You I know, rem I sorry, remember Paul. the one man particular that I had gone out on a patrol and I couldn't get back. I was on a jeep on a 50 caliber and couldn't get back to our unit. We had to go to another area and we were there for two days in this other area before we got back. Well, in that area, this man, and he was from my company, what he had been through and seen, he was up there when we were bringing in prisoners and he begged to shoot this one German and he cried because he wanted to kill that German soldier. What did he have against this guy particularly? I don't know particularly why, but they wouldn't let him do it, of course, uh -huh. because they, they, the military frowns on that. We, we know that. It's against the Geneva Convention, and all soldiers know that. But to take and, and just kill a man outright, the Americans didn't do that uh, as far as being in a bunch like what I've told about the uh, black soldiers that they killed in that group. As far as I know, they didn't do that. You, all three of you were ready to be, you were scheduled to be shipped over into the Japanese campaign after VE Day, isn't that right? Right, I had been overseas for 22 months and uh, I didn't have quite enough uh, 85 points to, to, uh, to be discharged. So I was sent back to the States uh, with uh, the remnants of, the, of my battery. And uh, the plan was for, for me to be shipped to Japan, as it was with some of the other people. But thank God uh, the, the atomic bomb uh, in yeah. August when I was home uh, stopped it. Have you ever seen uh, Paul Fussell's book titled, Thank God for the Atomic Bomb? No, I haven't. He was an infantry lieutenant. He's a mm -hmm. well-known, significant American writer, as well as a literary-type professor of English. And um, yeah, he did a book with that very title because he was also about to be redeployed into the Pacific Theater and was sure that he would die in the invasion of Japan. You know, I, I keep thinking how fortunate the three of us were here to survive this particular uh, uh, problem because it, it was serious. It was serious. And uh, we were just in the right place at the right time, mm -hmm. really. We must pause for a quick up, uh, first for some commercials and a quick update on the evening's news, and then we will return to Stuart McDonald, Bill Wilkin, and Paul Graham. Though I will say now that we're opening the phone lines, and if you want to raise a question, or if you are yourself a veteran of World War II and want to add something by way of supportive narrative, do by all means give us a call. The number 591-7200, 312, the area code if you're calling long distance. If you're at a great long distance and listening to us over the Internet and want to join us, you can do it by phone or you can, of course, do it by email. The email address, extension 720, one word, at tribune.com. We return after this. And we will go um, to the phones almost instantly. But first, uh, I'm sure many of our listeners 
would want to know something about and what happened then in your lives, that is to say, after the war. So let's do a quick survey of all the rest of your uh, long and distinguished careers. Stuart McDonald. I took advantage of the uh, GI Bill when I got home, looked around for something real easy. I wasn't too enthusiastic about going back to IIT. Um, I uh, saw the Columbia College of Radio ad, and this was 1946. You were a no. native Chicagoan, I should have Oh, been. yeah, I'm That's an old clear. South Sider yeah. from the good old days. 1945, 46, yeah, 46. And um, that sounded like a good deal. And that was its early days. Uh, they used announcers from the stations here mm -hmm. in Chicago to try to teach us. And uh, I stayed in there for about a year until I found out about an opening in Michigan City, Indiana at WIMS Radio. And I s <laughs> liked it there. They put me on it uh, on the morning schedule, the morning man. In those days, that was a dog schedule. Everything was at night, if you remember, in the early you days. You were the morning man at WIMS. That's right. And then sales, and then I was manager. And I stayed there from 1946 to 19... 99. So you've been in radio longer than I've been in radio. I've been in radio longer than most people I know. <laughs> and you fi you finally left that only a few years ago. Yes, not too long yeah. ago. But uh, yeah, it was a great, great. Uh, you still experience. sound like you know you still sound like a radio oh, man. Wow. Got a fine voice in terms of its uh, tone and also very well articulated. I wish I had your voice. No, I I prefer yours. <laughs> and uh, Bill Wilkin. Well, when I came back from the service, I was uh, just 21, and uh, I experimented in a few jobs and so forth, and uh, then I, I met a very beautiful young lady, and I married her, and she said, uh, oh, Bill, why don't we go to law school? I was interested in that, and we mm -hmm. went to law school, and uh, uh, I graduated, and uh, I was admitted to the bar in the state of New York, and uh, went into practice, and I was a defense attorney for... Uh, insurance companies, and then I had the opportunity to become a United States Administrative Law Judge in 1981, and I've been there since. And, and you are still doing that very Yes, sir, I am. What do you do in administrative law? What sorts of cases do you Actually, handle? I, I, any time the, uh, the cabinet members are entitled to, or pe people under certain departments are entitled to have a hearing before any of the, any of the, the uh, cabinet members, uh, I handle those hearings for them. And... Uh, in the main, it can be Social Security disability or, or mm -hmm. uh, Medicaid cases, things of that nature. Where are you based? In Gary. You, all three of you are from northern Indiana. I didn't make that clear earlier. Yeah, right at the present time, I think we are, yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Before you get to Paul, and he's ready, uh, I wouldn't dare go home unless I talked about my, my wonderful wife, Marge, <laughs> and our ten children that we had ten? in Indiana. Oh, yes, wonderful. seven boys, three girls. Mm -hmm. 22 grandchildren, and they've been the high point of our lives. I would think so. And Paul Graham. Well, I, the three of us here coming over tonight, we are 10 people, really. Stu had 10 children. My colleague had 10 children. Our, I beg your pardon, he comes from a family of 10, and I come from a family of 10. So there you are. We are in the tens. How many children do you have? I have stepchildren. No children of mm -hmm. my own, but I have stepchildren and very nice children.
I love them all. And your career was as a metallurgist, basically. Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. And when I come home from service, <clears throat> I had three brothers in service, and I was the youngest one. And I wanted, I really wanted to go in service. Some people, well, they just didn't want to go, but I did. I, but I thought I was going to end up in the Navy. My friend, his brother was in, and he had the Navy pea coat, and boy, I tried that on. I, boy, I look pretty good in this coat. I think I'll become a Navy man. Well, it didn't come to that. I was an Army man, and I guess that's where I should have been. And when I got home, the only my father and mother were both alive, and then my father died shortly after that, and there was nobody home except my mother and myself. My mother being a housewife, I went back to my regular job, and I stayed there and went to school in Michigan City, and also then in South Bend, I took classes. So that was the way it was for me. And I have a lovely wife. Of course you do. Uh, and all three of you are active now in an organization of Veterans of the Bulge. Is that right? That's right. And Stu, Stu, was the, Stu was actually the founder of our local organization, so he deserves a little credit. How many members are there? Uh, I can't give you the exact total. It comes and goes. Uh, we just had our uh, banquet uh, on December 13th. And I think I'd say 110, 120-something like that. Uh, we have lost since we started in 1993. I had our, we had our first meeting, and Paul was there. Him, I, I remember. And uh, about 20 people showed up. And what was the famous question you asked me uh, at that meeting? Oh, I'm so happy you asked me. <laughs> I said to Stu, Stu, why do you want to start this at this late date in our life? Stu's answer was, if not now, when? And, you know, it was a wonderful answer, and I'm glad mm -hmm. I belonged to that organization and uh, because we can talk, talk that other people realize what we're trying to get across and say. Actually, we have some associate members. I want you to know that we're losing members, unfortunately. As you know, the veterans are dying off at a pretty rapid pace these years. And we're always look, we're looking forward to going down to the World War II Memorial, the dedication in May of next year. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we lost 27 since we started, and which isn't too bad, considering, what is it, 1,500 a day now that uh, they figure that World War II veterans mm -hmm. are passing on. And, uh, yes, I guess some of us hope to get into Washington next year. Oh, I'm sure you'll all be there. You're all, I should say, uh, to those who are listening but don't see you, you all look in the prime of life and uh, uh, pink and, uh, and healthy and vigorous. I'm really quite impressed. <laughs> uh, and we will now go to the phones. 591-7200 is the number. You are the first caller. Good evening. Hello. Yes, sir. I was a veteran of the 11th Armored Division. We were in England on December 16th and rushed to the front lines. We went into battle on the 29th of December. We helped relieve all the other fellows that were caught there. We were with Patton's 3rd Army. What, was, uh, 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 what kind of specialty were you uh, involved in? Armored 
but more particularly, what do, what did you do? Uh, armored infantry machine gunner. You were a machine gunner? Yes. And you saw some real battle then as well? We went right in there on day one. We took over the town and had a lot of prisoners taken. Mm-hmm. I remember our mailman parading about 40 Nazis in back of the lines. It was uh, quite a battle, and we had quite a few casualties that day. Where are you Where are you located, sir? I'm in Glenview, Illinois. Uh-huh. So you're not a member of the Indiana Bunch uh, who are represented here tonight. No, we have an 11th Armored uh, Division Association. We meet uh, once a year, and our next meeting will be in Washington, D.C., in August of 04. Mm-hmm. Well, congratulations, and we're very proud of your service, and we were very proud of ours, too. So uh, thanks an awful lot for your armor. Oh, yes. <laughs> and thank you, sir, for the call. Thank you. Very glad to have heard from you, indeed. Yes. And we'll go directly to another. Hello, you're on the air. Uh, yes. <clears throat> yes, my name is uh, Dal Estes uh, from Pontiac, Illinois. I landed D-Day with the 467 Automatic Weapons Battalion. Uh, we uh, we fought through Normandy, northern France, central Europe, Ardennes, and Rhineland. I lost three men in the first 15 minutes on the beach D-Day at Omaha Beach. My goodness. And uh, we went on through the war. And uh, on the December 21st, we went back to Bastogne. Now, it happened on the 16th, but we went back on the 21st. Uh, mud, the worst... Uh, winter in 50 years, and uh, mud and uh, snow, sleet, everything else. Now, we talked about uh, uh, what happened on the 24th and why we were so successful on the 24th. The Air Corps started flying on the 24th and cleaned out a lot of people. Uh, The 106th and the 28th took an awful beating. Uh, I flew back to Paris with a boy on a stretcher from the 106. And he said, uh, what's going to happen to the 126, Sergeant? I was a sergeant at the time. And I said, well, you're going to reform. He said, I'm not going back that outfit. Everybody took off running. He said, the officers took off running, the corporals took off running, the sergeant took off running. I said, son, let me tell you, you were the 106, you took the beating. You took a bad beating. And a lot of those boys were green in the line. They weren't hadn't had the uh, training that we had had and the, and the experiences we had through Normandy, northern France, and all those places. I hope you're talking about the 106 rather than the 28th. <laughs> no, the 28th was hit hard, too. Uh, the 28th at Bastogne? At Bastogne? At Bastogne, the 101st was trapped with General McAuliffe. And he, he did say, uh, when they asked him to surrender, he said, nuts. You know, there were 7,000 boys uh, captured American boys one day. There was a total of 27,000 boys trapped during the Battle of the Bulge. Uh, and I met some of those boys later on. You, what happened when the, in the rest of your life when the war was over? When the war was over, I was a meat packer in St. Louis, a foreman in a meat packing plant. I was 25 years old. I was 27 when I made a landing D Day. I was a buck ass sergeant. I went back this year to, to Bass, Bastogne. I went to Maumetti. I went to the beach. I was honored by the French. 
I put on my uniform. I spoke over the national French television, telling the French people we still love them, and they love us, regardless of what the politicians and the media sense. Uh-huh. And uh, uh, I was uh, interviewed by BBC, mm. and they're making a, a documentary about another landing at Gallipoli. Uh, the British made it in 1915, and yeah. Churchill was mixed up in it. But uh, as far as uh, taking somebody out and shooting them, somebody mentioned that, that our boys took some people. We didn't do that. We're American boys. Uh, my captain came to me at the time of ball riding, and he said, Sergeant, you won't take any more prisoners. And I said, Captain, I didn't grow up like that. We don't shoot fish in a barrel where I come from. He said, you handle it like you want to. But I couldn't have, none of my boys could have shot anybody, any Germans that uh, they captured. We, well, we didn't want to no give way. you. The, we didn't want to give you the impression that uh, that uh, there was orders to shoot anybody. We, no, no, we, no. We didn't I didn't that. say that. I'm just saying that the American boy, the average American boy, would not shoot somebody uh, without any defense. Well, sir, we thank you very much for the call. It's, uh, wonderful having heard from you. Uh, there, are, I knew that we'd have some fine calls from veterans once we. Uh, turned on the phones. That happens every time uh, we talk about talk with people like you about their war experiences. Um, I, I imagine you can't get rid of the impressions that you took from such a major war. I imagine that sort of defines your own life for you, or much of it, uh, that you've often wondered, I'm sure, or uh, I'm not sure, I'll ask the question. Have you ever wondered how your life might have turned out if you had not been in that war? Well, Nobody could tell what would happen in your life. But being in service, I think it was one of the finest times of my life because... If you survived it. If you survived it, yes. Because I'm speaking now years later, of course, but the friendships that I made, they have endured over the years and course some of them are gone every day I I get noticed this man isn't mm. here anymore and it's sad but the friendships and the places I have been to and the reunions I've been to I I certainly know that it I could not duplicate that in any other life gentlemen we must pause for the usual reasons uh, at least Stuart and McDonald will be sympathetic with that having run a radio station for a long time he understands the necessity for commercials. And then we'll be directly back after this. My guests tonight are all veterans of the Battle of the Bulge, which indeed began 59 years ago this very day, December 16th, and ran for some five and a half weeks before the Germans were totally defeated. Uh, those guests are Stuart McDonnell, Bill Wilkin, and Paul Graham, all from northern Indiana, and they've all journeyed up here tonight in a limousine, as I understand it. I set that up thanks to my one of my sons. I'm very glad you did. And uh, I kept them on edge, you know. These two fellows don't want to drive at night. I was going to drive, and then we heard snowflakes possibly. Mm -hmm. So uh, thanks, Stu. Thank my you. my son <laughs> got us hooked up with a uh, a limo from Michigan City, and we had a ball. And hopefully he's going to be out there waiting for us after 11 o'clock. Now, what did you guys do about dinner tonight? Did you dine together? I ate, uh, no, we didn't. I was home. Why, are uh -huh. you taking us out? <laughs> <laughs> Take you out for a drink if you're in the mood for it. No, uh, I had a, a big lunch. Uh-huh. 
We go back to the phones now. Five nine one seven two double zero, and you are on the air. Good evening. Hello, gentlemen. I'm uh, 41 years old, an FBI agent, and my uncle John Walker was a 17-year-old veteran of the 1st Army 29th Infantry, uh, 29th Division, and I still call him every Veterans Day. My boys are 8, 6, and 4, and I still teach them about the sacrifices that your guests and many other brave men made. And I wondered if uh, if you gentlemen were familiar with the battle at Aachen, and if you had anything uh, to talk uh, or, or mention about that battle. You know, uh, this is Bill Wilkin. I, uh, uh, the thing that you brings to mind uh, the 29th. I have a great deal of respect for the 29th Division because, uh, a matter of fact, the 28th Division, uh, the division that I was in, was actually slated to be the uh, Omaha Beach uh, invasion force until about six or eight weeks before the invasion, and then they changed it to the 29th. So because of the 29th going in there, it probably saved my life. So, But I don't think I've as answered your question here about Aachen. Maybe someone else has the, uh, an answer for that. Well, I know that the... First Division fought there in Aachen, and it was a terrible battle, and I believe it was in September. And I know that the Germans had pillbox right in the cemetery. And uh, I know that streetcars was from one side of the street. It was over on the other side. It was bombed, and, well, everything went on in that. Of course, we got to remember, that was the the first city, large city, in Germany. And Hitler had given the word to protect that and hold at all cost. And that's one reason it was such a battle. I just wanted to mention to you, my uncle received a letter uh, just before he went to Aachen, and uh, it was from his mother, and uh, she said, Johnny, you are such a promising pianist. I hope you find the time to practice. And unfortunately, he didn't. So <laughs> he's still around, but I just thought you guys would be interested in that. I went through Aachen with our division when they brought us up uh, again, uh, and that was one of the worst bombed-out towns that I had ever seen. Uh, there, I ran into some others later uh, across the Rhine River, but uh, that was the first one, and it was a mess, and it showed the ferocious battle that was there. Aachen, Your sacrifice is not forgotten, gentlemen. We thank, thank you, you, sir, for the call. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Um, Aachen was, of course, many, many years before, a thousand years before, mm -hmm. the seat of the Holy Roman Empire. <laughs> the Emperor Charlemagne uh, headquartered at Aachen. That was his capital. See, I told you he read a lot. <laughs> <laughs> well, in Aachen, if you go to the, uh, the Dome, the, the cathedral, uh, there are wonderful exhibit materials, including um, the armor of Charlemagne's, uh, the reputed armor that he wore. So another soldier, you see. Yes. From that area. Soldiers have made a big dent in the history of the world. History is largely about soldiers, one way or another. Are you uh, familiar with the theme that history repeats itself? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I have to tell you a little story about my dad. He was a he was a Marine, uh, U.S. Marine in World War One. Uh huh. And he was in the Battle of Chateau-Thierry, Messiargon, Bella Woods, and so forth. And when he came back, uh, he kept his uniform. And for when I was a youngster, I used to see his uniform with the big Indian head on, patch on his sleeve. And I told him, I said, Dad, how, what, what insignia is that? He says, that's the 2nd Division. I said, the 2nd Division is an Army Division. He said, I don't know. He said, but that's, that's the patch they get, we gave us. So I found out later that Black Jack Pershing, did not want the Marines to have any credit for any of the victories in the Bella Woods, Meuse, Argonne, or Shadow Theory, so he attached them to the 2nd Army Infantry Division. 
And that's the reason why he had the patch on hmm. there. Now, the reason it's repeating itself is that I'm saying he went through the same areas that I went through yeah. as, as uh, World War II. My father was in World War I also, and he was in the Navy. So <laughs> we, you know, have the same thing there. And uh, What are your thoughts about the situation that our troops are facing right now in Iraq? Well, I would I would like to say this, you know, the I'd like to say that the uh, the, the same situation that we were in, they're under orders, they follow orders, they do what they have to do, and I'm I'm very proud of them. I think their equipment that they've got is much better than what we had. Uh, we had a steel helmet, and that's about all we had to protect mm -hmm. ourselves. And thank goodness these uh, boys over in Iraq have some protective clothing and so forth, which help. But they all—it's all war. It's all—it's all tragedy when somebody has to when somebody is killed. I uh, this may be wake up some people now uh, when we talk about what's going on over there. I don't think you've been boring them up to now, but go ahead. <laughs> um, I thought right from the start we didn't use enough troops. I—I mm -hmm. I still think that. I when I hear about. The ambushes, and there should be protection from the air, I think. We even had that in many cases in World War II. Uh, uh, I, I am in favor of our current president and what he's been doing, if you don't mind a little politics in there. Uh, I've been watching it very closely. Uh, it was very interesting seeing... <laughs> the capture of uh, the fellow in the hole there. Uh, it's still going to be a long time to go there. I think the troops over there still have a lot of work to cover uh, in Iraq. We'll um, pause for a quick round of messages and then right back to the phones. Uh, if you're trying to reach us, you're not getting through because all the lines are taken. But the proper strategy is to try again right after we say goodnight to some prior caller. and. We'll go to the next soon-to-be prior caller after this. Before we go back to the phones, I'm looking um, at a map of the battle. And uh, we have the names of a number of generals associated with uh, their, um, the armies they're leading or the divisions they're leading, uh, just running down the roster. Uh, Bradley, Patton, of course, Milliken, um, Middleton, and uh, at, on the other side, Dempsey, Montgomery, well, Mon that's Montgomery, uh, the British general, of course, uh, Horrocks, is it, um, and so on. What about the command, uh, the command side of the Battle of the Bulge? Well, I'd like to say, uh, I don't want to get to the Battle of the Bulge at the moment, if you could, Milt. What I would like to comment about is uh, Hurtgen Forest. That mm -hmm. was the most ridiculous situation that I, that I, I can think anybody can be put in. That, that particular battle was so bad that we had four different divisions that were cut to pieces, we lost 2,000 men in our, our uh, 28th Infantry Division uh, uh, just alone. Are you implying there were some bad generalships? Yes, they should have gone around Schmidt. They didn't have to try to capture Schmidt. Who was, who was Schmidt? Schmidt was, was, a, was a German uh, yeah. uh, city. Oh, wait, not a person, but a Oh, yeah, it's a German town. city that, yeah. that, that uh, the, the, uh, the Germans wanted to keep. Yeah. And there were some dams there and so forth. But... The generals shouldn't have a direct frontal attack on this particular objective. They should have gone around it. There were, there were so many casualties there that we had 2,000. That's why we had to go in rest area. That's where we were hit by the bulge. Then we got the bulge. Who, who was commanding in that operation? Well, I think, I think General Bradley was the one that was really involved in this circumstance. 
uh, it went right up to the top. Finally, uh, General Eisenhower, uh, they were ready to uh, to put uh, put us. I know I was I was ready to go up to, as a forward observer with the with the captain, one particular night, at, in the Hurricane Forest, and and we were ready to go, and it was awful. I mean, the, it, these these hurt, this Hurricane Forest was reduced to a bunch of toothpicks because of the the, the uh, artillery that was there, G- tremendous artillery from the German side. Mm-hmm. And Eisenhower took us out because we had no infantry left. But as far as the Battle of the Bulge was concerned, I was up at the front. I saw these, and I heard the noises of the, of the tractors and the trailers and the, and, and the tanks and everything else and the, and the movement that was going on up there. And we kept reporting this back to them. Some of us would, some of us had the feeling that they wanted to have this particular bulge so that they could get the Germans out of their hole and beat beat them up. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's some, really, there's some, uh, I think, veracity to this. <laughs> Well, that battle and the German defeat, that really broke the back of the German military, didn't it? Sure. From there yes. on, they were in retreat yes. until the yes. taking of Berlin. But they fought all the way. They lost all their equipment. Yeah. You know, they weren't... Uh, they were... I had respect in many t- cases of the German soldier from the the way they uh, stood up and uh, and fought against overwhelming odds, mm-hmm. I would think. They were running out of men, Stu, really, weren't they? Well, they started getting we, we younger, yes. too many of them. <laughs> yeah. I, I know we ran across uh, uh, a whole group of uh, kids. They couldn't have been more than 15 years old. You wonder, what mm. the heck are they doing in this uniform, you know? What's, what was the total number of, um, of war casualties, of military casualties for the Germans? Runs up to upwards to about three million, doesn't it? Well, when you consider the Russian front too, I'm sure that yeah, fig- I mean, that figure for the total is uh, war. right. Uh, that figure is very, very accurate. Might even those be a are, little bit low. Those are military as well as civilian <laughs> yeah. casualties. Mm-hmm. And our total loss was about four hundred thousand. I think war. that's about right. We had a, a what twenty million under arms. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We still we still have some missing in action from World War II. Well, to be sure. Yeah. Yeah. Gentlemen, let's go back to the phones. Five nine one seven two double zero is the number you are on the air. Good evening. Hi, good evening. Yes, uh, sir. I'm my name's Patrick. I'm from Baraboo, Wisconsin. I'm a twelve year submarine veteran and I, I thank God for your service and I I just appreciate the opportunity to talk to you guys. Uh I have a couple questions. One is uh how how did the movie Band of Brothers depict things for you? And my second question is do you have any Humorous stories or uh, hardship stories of how you had to take care of yourself, uh, eating, sleeping, brushing your teeth, all that through this through this uh, long period in the winter. Well, I like the, I like the confession that Stuart uh, McDonald gave us during the last commercial break about eating. You want to repeat that on the air? I'll take my answer off the air. Thank we you, thank you, sir, for the call. Your comment about uh, the ra- the war rations and oh, your yeah. continuing enthusiasm for one. Oh well, I'm. Uh... As my wife will tell you, I'm a great admirer of one of the things that uh, we used to get in cans <laughs> there overseas, and that's Spam. I've heard so many, you know, guys tell me, ah, I'm glad I didn't have to eat any more of that stuff. But you're still eating Spam, I'm right? still eating it, and, <laughs> yes. And But I'm amazed at what our present troops are getting in the way of ready-to-eat meals. I mean... <laughs> It's better than I'm eating at home, you know. <laughs> You're in trouble, Stu. You're yeah, I'm probably. <laughs> All right, Marge. <laughs> you know, I would like to tell an incident that's on the fun side. <clears throat> anyway, it was fun for me. 
this is before we went up to the front and at night we could see the flashes in the sky it looked like a thunderstorm but it was the artillery up there and we were back and we were going to cook up some chickens and uh, we had two chickens and for our group we should have one more chicken well I happened to know where there was one more chicken so I took my friend Joe and he was in a jeep and I said Joe we're going down to this little German farmhouse and our friend Al he was a big Polish boy he has a chicken in there that he's after the egg and I said now we'll turn around and head back but you keep the Jeep in gear and keep ready to roll and I'll go in and see if I can get this chicken so I went in there and sure enough in the barn right there which is attached to the house there's the chicken and there's Al and he's waiting for that hen to lay that egg well I got over by Al and I said gee Al I want to hold that chicken he said you're not taking that chicken I said oh I used to raise chickens I know all about them I just want to pet him and so he helped me help me catch him Al which he did I got that chicken under my arm and I'm talking and I'm diverting him to other things and I dashed out that door jumped in that jeep and away we went down the road he ran out in the road and I'm sure he called me every name under the sun but anyway we're down there and I got that chicken and we had enough chicken then and uh, we made uh, biscuits and we had a nice dinner but after that Al was still my friend it's a great story <clears throat> You know, the last caller uh, mentioned the Band of Brothers. Mm -hmm, the film. Yes, and uh, I, actually, I, I, an Army outfit is, is just like a family. And uh, you get to depend upon others. They depend upon you. And you have a real, really, really remorse if you feel that you haven't lived up to your obligation within the unit. So that my, that's my, only my observation about that. We've, we're loaded with email. Let me read you one. Um, it's addressed to me, and it says, I feel so fortunate that we Americans had and do now have such great, brave, and unselfish armed service people that have made unspeakable sacrifices and have given all to defend us and the free world, so much that it brings tears to my eyes. I would like to commend you, Milt, for the show. My father, Herbert C. Stevens, a Battle of the Bulge veteran and Purple Heart recipient, the gentleman on your show tonight, and all U.S. Armed Forces veterans, uh, and active service people everywhere. Thank you. And it's signed by a gentleman who says he's listening on the Internet uh, in Huntington Beach, California. Uh, and one or two more quick emails before we go back to the phones. Um, the three of you have a great deal of knowledge about the battle. Have you studied the history and details of the battle after the war, or is all of this from your personal experience during those days? I would make a general statement just to answer that very quickly. We never knew where we were, where we were going, until after it happened. Uh, so you didn't really have a chance, unless you were, you know, higher rank and maybe. But when you were a, a private or a PFC or even a sergeant, you, you didn't, you know, pick up your gear and follow me. You know, that's, that's all you heard. 
Well, I agree. I agree with Stu that we never knew where we were going, because uh, uh, well, we did, we weren't in, we didn't have the maps and so forth that the officers had, and uh, so it, uh, it, it it we couldn't really tell what we we're doing. So most of the most of it that we did we we have done some reading, of course, and that's refreshed my recollection sometimes about the places where we've been and what we've been doing. But all in all, we, what we did was we followed orders, we did what we were supposed to do, and thank God we, we did it successfully. I think the Band of Brothers was one of the best motion pictures I had seen concerning that particular part of uh, the battle. I thought it was filmed very well. The authors that write some of these books and the places we've been, the German towns, and some of it is factual that it fits what I know, but I don't know everything that went on a hundred yards from me. I wouldn't know anything about that. So it's only what happened to you as an individual, mostly right in front of you. Other than that, uh, no, nobody, no, no general ever called me and asked if it was okay <laughs> uh, if, if we went here or went there. They, they just wouldn't do it. And they didn't drop in to give you a lecture on the disposition of forces and the nature of the strategy. Never. How many times did <laughs> you ever see your general? Uh, well, I saw Patton. He wasn't my general uh, at first, but I did see him down on one of our river crossings. I did see him down there. I only Patton. saw General Cota, who was our division uh, uh, commander, once. Once. He... Do you remember General Cota on that... Uh... On D-Day uh, film, Coda was there. On the, he was That's the executive right, yeah. officer in the 29th, and he uh, he was really uh, was something. He really was. Robert Mitchum took his uh, his part in the movie. That was a good movie too. The longest day. Yes, fine one. Mm -hmm. uh, back to the phones. Five nine one seven two double zero. Good evening. You're on the air. Yes. Hello. Is that uh, is this me? Yes, sir. Hello. Uh, first, I just wanted to thank you for uh, for putting this on the air and a uh, few gentlemen coming in and uh, sharing your experiences. I was actually uh, calling about my uncle, uh, Lieutenant James McGee, who was from Chicago, and he was killed uh, on October 17, uh, 1944. And I um, actually I have his letters here with me, and it's kind of funny. The previous caller mentioned uh, uh, some things about what they ate and what they did, and uh, if you wouldn't mind, I have a short little letter here that he wrote in October of 1944, October 8th. How short? Uh, just a few lines. Sure, here. go ahead. Uh, it says, Dear folks, I'm sitting in a German house right now in a little town behind the lines about a mile. I'm going to take a hot bath. Uh, we send a few men back at a time. The house is a mess. Everything is a wreck. Most of it was done by the Nazis retreating so you can see what kind of people were fighting. Uh, they shell their own towns. Uh, we didn't think they'd do it, but it looks as if we were uh, mistaken. I have to use my notebook again because my paper is back in the foxhole. And then he goes on to, um, to talk about how we, uh, he's looking forward to taking a shower. He, uh, he speaks about the mud as he marched across uh, uh, Germany in various letters every day. Do you know what division he was in? Uh, he was um, in the uh, second lieutenant in the 4th Cavalry Group, I think the 101st Cavalry. And as much as we can determine, uh, he was killed uh, uh, in Aachen or around Aachen on October 17th and wrote letters up until the day before he was killed. Hmm. They, they speak, or he speaks about uh, the mud, about uh, longing for uh, chocolate chip cookies from home and uh, about how uh, artillery rounds would kill a cow and they'd have steaks. Uh, real colorful experience, really, but uh, um, 
uh, we have all the letters here, and uh, I was actually just wondering if there's any resources you know of where I could uh, maybe find some more information about uh, the movements of his uh, his troop um, and uh, the men he, he fought with. Well, there there's so many references now on the computers, and uh, there's a great deal of uh, information usually available if you can get to the right source in the computer. Um, any in particular you know of, or... Um, are there, are there, are there daily? Well, I think your best way is to go to a search engine and just enter what you have in mind. Yeah. Um, the name of the division and maybe Aachen or uh, a few few words like that, and you'll you'll have a thousand references. Uh -huh. But there is also, of course, the Army historical operation. Uh, they certainly must make some services available to um, people who have inquiries about relatives who died in the wars. Yeah, yeah I was wondering uh, that perhaps there were some uh, reports every morning about casualties and. Uh, and the deaths and that that were sent back. Uh, I, I'm not quite sure what those Frankly, are. Frankly, I think if you just call the Pentagon, call the Department of the Army in the Pentagon, and ask about historical resources, and they would probably guide you. But uh, Paul Graham has something to add. The book is Battle of the Bulge by Danny S. Parker. Now, that book is quite a large book uh, in size, and it has mm. in there about every unit that fought in the bulge artillery, uh, air force, infantry, I would say that would be a good reference book to get. Okay. Battle Sir, of the Bulge by Danny S. Parker. And would that October 17th date have been, uh, actually been the bulge, or was that... Was that no. No, no, that's, no. Uh, yeah. that's no, earlier. That, yeah, that was before it. Yeah. yeah. Thank you, sir, for the call. Thank you. And directly to another, hello, you're on the air. Thank you, Milt. Uh, my name is uh, Max Salmon. I'm in Thornton, Illinois, a veteran of uh, 106th Division. Uh, the, um, I had a rather fortunate uh, turn of events in my, in my career, however. Uh, I trained with the 422nd Infantry Division uh, in the States, and uh, before we, uh, we shipped over, I was transferred uh, to Division Headquarters. And I wound up, uh, we wound up in uh, Bielsaum, uh, rear, the uh, rear echelon uh, headquarters, St. Vith was our forward echelon uh, uh, location. And um, the, uh, uh, we, uh, our, what I uh, experienced was a, uh, about five nights or six nights in a foxhole. Uh, fortunately, uh, the, uh, they didn't break through at that point. We, um, uh, we, our withdrawal from Bielsaum and from St. Vith uh, was a, um, uh, a uh, accomplished uh, largely by the 82nd Airborne Division, who came up uh, through us, uh, through our lines, and uh, rimmed the, the um, perimeter of, of uh, that penetration. So we uh, were able to withdraw, and as uh, we withdrew, uh, the Germans came in. But um, I, uh, I really want to commend uh, the uh, gentlemen who were, uh, three gentlemen who were on the panel, I believe they were instrumental in uh, creating that Battle of the Bulge monument, or memorial, rather, at uh, Kaimat Park. Is it uh, a uh, cemetery yes. in Indiana? Yes. And uh, my wife and I uh, were both there We, uh, we uh, uh, the day that it was dedicated. And uh, you gentlemen did a splendid job, and uh, it's a beautiful, beautiful uh, uh, memorial. That uh, was due in, in most part to a fellow who was supposed to be with us here on this program, Bill Tooley. And he's the one who uh, got that going and raised the funds from our group. And uh, uh, 
we can't say enough about him, but we thank you very much for being there. Not at all. There is one little uh, incident uh, that I experienced you may like, like me to share with you. Um, you talked about a uh, not knowing what was happening. We were at rear echelon, and uh, we were. Uh, I was in the adjutant general's section, and uh, the G2, uh, as you well know, and G3-4 also were back in that area. And I walked into, would you believe, uh, the G2 command post of the division, and there was only a, a tech sergeant uh, on duty. I was a, a, a T3 uh, in, uh, in the adjutant general's office. And you can imagine uh, walking into uh, the headquarters, <laughs> if you will, command post of a division, looking at the map on the wall, and I said to uh, the sergeant, I said, uh, what's, what's happening? And he said, you tell me. And there were, uh, they were plotted uh, on that wall, on that map, the location of the initial uh, uh, placement of um, our troops. And as you know, uh, 106 covered a 27-mile sector. And normally in a combat uh, situation, they covered a 10-mile sector. Um, and, uh, you had the 424th left, I think, at that time, did you uh, not? As, as you faced east, I think the, uh, the 424th is on the far right flank. The 422nd, right. 423rd, and, and the I think the 112th co combat team was joined with your organization. That's, yes. Yes, that's fine. I, thank yeah. you. Yes. So um, that was kind of interesting. Uh, in the heat of the battle, there you were in a G2, and <laughs> nobody knew what was going on. Uh, rather frightening at the, at the same time, obviously. Right. Sir, I thank you for the call. Not at all. Thank Very you. glad to have heard from you. We need to cut away for a last quick round of messages, and then back to the phones, 591-7200. And speaking of the audio archive, I've been saying in recent nights that the newest program that we've put up on the archive so that you can hear it again or hear it for the first time if you missed it, was our conversation with Paul Simon only a month before he passed on. Um, and uh, it was a very interesting discussion between Paul Simon and uh, another one of our guests um, uh, about, really, American politics. Um, he was a wonderful man. I knew him not uh, very, very well, but with considerable admiration over many years. Um, you can hear him uh, in his last, I think, his last radio program, or certainly his last major radio appearance on our audio archive. We, uh, while we were in the last commercial break, I think it was Bill Wilkin who said, but we haven't told any of our funny stories. Yeah, there's humor in war as well. What, did you, All what, right, what the, story do you have? Uh, give me a minute here or so. The, uh, uh, we were down in the Vazgis Mountains, and uh, it was a it was rather an inactive sector. In other words, it wasn't as hot as some of the other sectors. And mm -hmm. we had an observation post that was uh, covered with logs and so forth. And it was right at the front line. And out in the middle of, oh, maybe a quarter of a mile away, there was this uh, a house. And it was used by the Germans to uh, observe us. So what happened was uh, we were artillery. And the, right with us was a group of engineers. Now, they weren't combat engineers. They were just engineers. And there was a lieutenant colonel who was in charge of this battalion who apparently wanted to become a colonel very badly. So he decided that uh, he was going to take the bull by the horns, and we were going to go out, and he was going to burn down that observation, that house that the Germans used. Well, he got, he got everything set, and uh, frankly, I said to my lieutenant, in fact, I said, look, at what are we doing? We could throw a couple of rounds of of white phosphorus into that building any time he wanted to and burn it down. He said, I don't know. He said, I'm not a lieutenant colonel. So this colonel got this, this uh, uh, group together, 
and uh, they had jerry cans, and they were going to take this out and put it on the on the house and burn the house down. Well, they got out there. It was it was it was like a combat patrol. There could have been some some real real problem with this thing if it went wrong. Well, they got out there and they put the liquid on, and it wouldn't burn because they brought out diesel fuel. <laughs> so what happened then? Didn't burn down. <laughs> and he didn't make. It didn't didn't burn. Not he, with the diesel did, fuel. And he, and he didn't make Colonel. I I, I hope not. <laughs> At least not that week. That we had a party that wanted to know how they get in touch and get more information about a certain unit. I forget mm -hmm. what it was. But I found out, finally, the mailing address for our National Office of the Veterans of the Battle of the Bulge. That's how you start it. So write this down. Veterans of the Battle of the Bulge, P.O. Box 11129. 11129. Arlington, Virginia, 2221020. Two one two nine. They can tell you most anything about any unit that was in the battle. Now there may be some veterans of the bulge listening tonight who uh, are glad to learn that there is an organization of veterans of the bulge, but who haven't been in touch with it. How do they get in touch with you? Well, I suppose I could give you my phone number uh, or a mailing address or. Uh, an email. I don't have it handy. Well, we'll make you give it to us later, and I'll we'll give make, you my, I'll we'll give make you it available phone. to anybody right. who calls and asks. And don't do it over the air. No. All right. But um, give it to us later, and we'll make it available to Thank people you. who might be interested in having it. Uh, and um, there's time for just one or two more very quick calls. Hello. Here's the next. Yes, sir. Yeah, my name is Elmore Legrand. I'm in Hickory Hills. I was in uh, uh, the 106th uh, Infantry Division. I was a rifleman in the 423rd Regiment, and we got in the front line on December 10th. December 16th, they started shelling us. So on the 17th, they said we start going, uh, trying to get away. We we battled them on, on, at night, two nights in a row we battled them. The next day was the 19th of December. We got captured by the Germans. They, they walked us to Schoenberg, Germany, and from Schoenberg, Germany, they, and the next morning they marched us around the town showing the people that they captured the American Army. So How'd they treat you? What they did was they put us in boxcars uh, to go to, to, to uh, the prison camp. In December, we were in there from the 22nd of December to the, to the, to the 26th. And on the 25th, we got bombed by the Air Force. Because there was no uh, no uh, signs on the on the on the uh, trains, and we got in we got into Bad Orb, Germany then, and then uh, we were in that prisoner of war camp, and we had to we had to uh, uh, stay there until uh, you got liberated. Easter. Easter Sunday. We well, sir, we're very glad you got out of it and that you lived through it. I fear that we're out of time. I thank you very much for the call. Uh, sometimes I must be cruel to be kind because I want to say a very sincere thank you to our three guests tonight who've uh, journeyed up from northern Indiana to participate. And you've been wonderful guests, and it's been a fascinating program for me. And uh, I want to add to uh, what at least one or two of our listeners has said uh, on the air and in email, namely, you have my thanks for what you did. Uh, I wasn't there, uh, but you helped make the rest of my life possible by the victory that uh, the brave American soldiers won for us in that war. Um, and 
well, my life particularly, you know, since I'm a, an American Jew. If those bastards had won and had come over here, uh, I wouldn't be here, uh, just as most of my relatives in Europe uh, disappeared in the 1940s. Um, our guests have been Stuart McDonald, Bill Wilkin, and Paul Graham, and I most sincerely thank you for joining us. A few quick words about programs to come. Tomorrow night, uh, Susan Browdy, who's done a book about Kathy Boudin and her family, will be one of our guests. Who's Kathy Boudin? That weather underground person, uh, the daughter of an eminent leftist lawyer who joined in the robbery of a Brinks truck and in the killing of three Brinks guards a long time ago. And she's just recently been released from prison. Susan Browdy has written about her and her family and will be one of our guests. The other will be David Horowitz, who's uh, been here before. Um, Thursday night, we talk with Bruce, Evans, Bruce Evanson, who's done a biography of D.L. Moody, and the subject is D.L. Moody, Dwight Moody, and mass evangelism in the United States. Two other guests join us, one of them an old friend, Mark Knoll of Wheaton College, also Greg Criggle of the Moody Bible Institute. Friday, a very special night, the year at WGN, with Dave Kaplan, Steve Cochran, and the beloved Andrea Darlis. Uh, and with all of that, we will say a cordial good night, and we'll look forward to being with you again tomorrow at 9.